Gracious God, as we gather, we pray that you might uh, minister to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for one another. And I pray that you would um, uphold me as I seek to uplift you and your word as we gather around it. And may your spirit speak to us and have free reign. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Is the sound okay? Sound good? Great. Well, you have uh, your usual raft of uh, pans outs, only they're a little bit different in that there are some diagrams. But you'll find, I think, uh, three handouts. Uh, one is the uh, usual uh, multi-length one that is uh, seven or eight pages. And then there is one that is a diagram. And then there's a one that is an outline of my sermon, which is on uh, two sides of the page. And I seem to be lacking the outline itself. I'm wondering if I can get somebody to share. Thanks, Logan, to the rescue. This guy has been a rescuer in my life for the past some time. You two wouldn't be married if he weren't for my rescuer, humanly speaking. So you have your outline. And I'm going um, to use the outline to, to guide us through. And I'm aware that today... Um, this is more of a Bible lesson than it is a sermon, but it's an important Bible lesson in that it pertains to two books of the Bible that are very important, the book of Psalms and the book of Samuel. And with a proper understanding of how to relate Psalms and Samuel, I think we will be in a better position to see Jesus in the Psalms, to pray the Psalms, and to reach out and to uh, cry out to God in the manner of David and also in the manner of the future David, who is none other than the living Lord. So to begin as a way of review, our subject is David and the Psalms. We've been doing a series on the Psalms and looking mostly at the macro structure of the Psalms as they pertain to Jesus. And we have found that in addition to those individual Psalms that point to Jesus, that the structure of the whole book points to Jesus and that it has been crafted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order for this collection of poems to point to the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was aware of that. And it ought not to be a surprise that it has only taken uh, 20 centuries for Old Testament scholars to begin to realize part of what Jesus was up to in his own understanding of the, of the Psalms. So, the Psalms are about Jesus, and that has been much of the topic of our sermon series. But also at times we've been looking at individual psalms that are part of the structure of the book of Psalms, such as Psalm 73, which lies at the center, or Psalm 146 to 50, which lies at the end and which sends us out on a note of praise. I've been aware as we've been going through the past weeks that the going has been a little bit thick at times, and so I thought that I would uh, remind us of some diagrams that I have shown you in the past. And I just want to refer you to these diagrams. You'll have um, um, a set of diagrams, I, th I think. And they are lettered A, B, C, and D. Have you got them? Great. A you have seen before. And I hope it's familiar to you. It is a, a diagram of the book of Psalms. You see this building. And the building echoes the book of Psalms. We've seen this before. Psalms 1 and 2 are an entry into the building. Uh, and the exit to the building is a concluding 146 to 50, which is numbered PTL, which means praise the Lord. And there are five books which are part of the structure of the book of Psalms. 
And uh, there's a major distinction between books one and three and four and five. Down at the bottom of the first page is, a, is an enlargement of Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 tells us what we can expect by reading the book. And originally, it was a wisdom psalm. It stood alone to talk about the wisdom of God and the wisdom of meditating upon God's law. But an editor put it at the beginning of the book of Psalms as an introduction to the book to tell us that if we meditate upon this law book, this five-book law book, we too will grow in our faith. And Psalm 2 comes right behind it in order to tell us the subject matter of the book of Psalms, which is none other than the king of the Jews, whose reign is inauspicious according to human rulers who try to oppose him, but he's got the whole world in his hands, and he has the destiny of the nations in his hands. So the book of Psalms is about Jesus. If you look at uh, the page to follow, there is an enlargement of the floor, diagram number C. And we notice that in the first three books of Psalms, there was a relative emphasis on David as the king. And then at the end of book three, around Psalm 86 and 89, human Davidic kingship came into crisis. David's crown was lying in the ground. And this is, as we will come to explain uh, a little bit more clearly in a few minutes, is a prophecy that echoes the ministry of Jesus, where the Davidic king seemed to be in trouble, and he seemed to have died. But lo and behold, the Davidic king lives on in books four and five, as we can see by looking at diagram D, which is a little bit dark and a little bit messy, I'm sorry. But the point isn't the artwork, it's the subject matter. And you'll see that even though the Davidic king's life seems to be at an end, at the end of book three, he rises again in books four and five. And so we have Psalm 110, which Jesus used to trip up the Jewish leaders. We have Psalm 118 and Psalm 132, and also Psalm 144, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And the point is, is that a Moses-like priestly David is back from the dead as a go-between between the human and the divine. So we can see how the structure of the book of Psalms points to Jesus in a way in which many of the individual Psalms do. So that's a reminder of our diagrams in the book of Psalms. Now there's an unstated implication that still remains controversial in some conservative circles of evangelicalism. And I wouldn't be surprised if over the past month, some of you from time to time have been scratching your heads and saying to yourselves, I, I have... I, this may be okay, but I'm, I'm not used to it. And here's the assumption that some people might want to question, but which I would like to defend. And it's on your outline right there under an unstated implication. Uh, it's no longer on the diagram, but it's on, the, it's on that single sheet with two sides on it. Yeah, I'm just looking at you, Pam, and you've got it. Great. A psalm can carry more meaning than intended by the original writer. A psalm can convey more meaning than intended by the original writer. Uh, when I went to seminary, I was told that um, you have to preach only the original intention of the original writer of the psalm. But that never made sense to me, and it still doesn't. And that's because there is a divine author who knows and sees more than the original human writer did. God, who inspired the writer, is sometimes able to see more and understand more than the human-inspired writer's writing. 
This is what's called the sensus plenier, which is a fancy Latin term for the fuller sense. And when it comes to the book of Psalms, this is important for what we're doing. There was also an editor who collected the Psalms into a meaningful and messageful whole. Take, for example, Psalms 1 and 2, which we just looked at. Psalms 1 and 2 once functioned independently, but now they've been brought together under the inspiration of the Spirit to introduce us to the book of Psalms as a whole. And we'll notice as well that Psalm 3 is the first psalm into the book, and it talks about David, and it talks about a David who suffers. And for many of the psalms in the first few books of the psalms, about 35 in fact, from 3 to 41, with the exception of only one or two, they're all about David. And so we see here that David is being talked about as a suffering individual against the backdrop of Psalm 2, which talks about a king who's going to be vindicated and a king whose rule is going to be surprising and who's uh, going to um, control the world's destiny by his life. So the point is this. The Psalms mean more than they did when the original writer wrote them. They still mean that, but they can take it on a fuller life because the Holy Spirit of God sometimes knew what the human writers didn't know. And also, the Holy Spirit inspired an editor who decided where the Psalms should go, and the editor has constructed a whole which points to the coming Messiah. Last week I used an analogy um, of um, a paper plate that could also be used as a Frisbee. And that's because um, I couldn't bring my favorite analogy, and I still can't. And that is a wagon wheel that's become a chandelier. Think about this for a minute, because I think it'll help understand um, what we've been doing for the past several weeks and what we'll be doing for some more. If I show you a wagon wheel that's hanging from the ceiling, it's a chandelier, I will say to you, what is it? Is it a wagon wheel or a chandelier? And you could say a wagon wheel, and you'd be right. You could say a chandelier, and you'd be right. But if you wanted to be more accurate, you would say, well, it was a wagon wheel, and still is a wagon wheel, but it has become a chandelier. It's, it's been kind of revived, and it's taken on a new... This, my friends, is what has happened with the Psalms. Many of them had a wagon wheel incarnation. They all had a wagon wheel incarnation. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... They have um, been rejuvenated and point to something that's still an integral part of what they are, but they are now prophecies in general about the Messiah. And so uh, the wagon wheel analogy, I think, um, helps. So if I'm talking about aspects of the Psalms that are different than what you're used to, just say to yourself, I think he's probably talking about the chandelier incarnation of the Psalms and not the wagon wheel incarnation. So here's my question. Have you perhaps been struggling with understanding our studies together because you didn't know that a text could have more than one meaning? You don't have to agree with me, but um, <coughs> that's, my, that's, that's my stick, and I'm sticking to it, and I think that the New Testament bears that up away as well. So that's a backdrop for us to look for a few minutes together at the subject of David and the Psalms. And this picks up on a sermon that Roger did uh, early on in our series on Psalm 63, and you remember that Roger uh, looked at Psalm 63 and he addressed Psalm 63 against the backdrop of its title. Uh, in, in the title described an incident in David's life uh, when he was in the wilderness. So this is uh, a talk that's designed to kind of put in context David and the Psalms as a whole. I want to draw your attention, if you, if you would please, to the, to the next diagram. And it's 
Uh, it's number E on your handout. We talked a little bit about this last week. And we noticed that Psalm 18 and 1 Samuel 22 are the same psalm. And so I've tried to draw uh, one box. Uh, it's, uh, it's a handout with uh, only a diagrams. Maybe you didn't get one, Emmanuel, did you? Okay. Uh, can you guys share? Is there anybody else who's missing one? Uh, we didn't produce maybe quite as many as we should have. Has everybody got uh, a diagram that they can see? Okay, put up your hand if you don't. Doug, you good? Okay, great. So uh, the top part has the book of First uh, and Second Samuel, David's historical life. And then I've tried to draw what's a hinge. Uh, I think it looks like a hinge, and it's got 22 at the top and 18 at the bottom. First Samuel 22 is the same as Psalm 18. And it's the same psalm, and it's there to form almost literally a hinge between the two books, between the books of Samuel and the book of Psalms. And that hinge is very significant because it, it weds the two books. If, you read, uh, if you've read First and Second Samuel like we did part of today, we read a story about David that didn't seem to have much theology in it at all. In fact, David... Um, he decided to be a crazy guy, and he had, uh, you know, he had spittle drooling from his beard, and he was feigning madness in order not to be a threat to the Philistine king of Gath, and therefore not to be killed. Uh, Akish king of Gath took a look at him and said, well, that was David, but he's now a nutcase, and he doesn't pose a threat to anybody. The guy can't even keep spittle in his mouth. And so David, through his own ingenuity, uh, negotiated his way out of a difficult situation. And that is much of what happens in the books of First and Second Samuel. Well, First, Second, First Samuel chapter 22 comes along, and it is a summary of uh, David's contests against uh, his enemies and against Saul. If you look on page, uh, page uh, six of your handout, you'll see that there are 12 psalms which have titles that refer to David. Roger preached on one of them a few weeks ago, and I have a list of others here. But there's an asterisk beside Psalm 18 because it's more general than any of the others. It says, He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, that would pertain to pretty much any event in the whole book of Samuel. So 1 Samuel 22, namely Psalm 18, is there at the end, at the appendix of the book of Samuel, is a way of saying, hey, if you want to understand the spiritual dimension of what's going on in David's life, read the Psalms. So here the two books are linked. And at the bottom of the page, you'll see that I have written uh, in the, the, the bottom box the Psalms that have... Um, titles that link us to events in David's life, and they are uh, listed um, on page 6, which I just referred you to. So I have these little threads as if to suggest that the books of Samuel and Psalms are stitched together. And Psalm 18 is like kind of a net. It's general enough that it falls all over the historical narrative of David. So the books are connected, uh, and uh, we get a window on David's spiritual journal uh, in when we read the Psalms. So if I were to ask you, after you read Ling Zee's uh, passage, hmm, 
um, what's the theological message? You think, well, there's not a lot of theology there. I mean, it's interesting to know what happened to David. It's interesting to know that he had the ingenuity to get out of his problem. But along comes Psalm 56, as if to say, here's a window into what's going on in his life. I think it was about 15 years ago that I watched a movie, and I really enjoyed it. And then after the movie, at the appendix, and I bet you've seen this, at the end of the movie, they show you the background scenes. You know, where there was a, a flub, where one of the actors decided to crack a joke in the middle of a shoot, or, you know, somebody spilled coffee on the cameraman, and they're all laughing. And uh, the first time I saw it, I was kind of jarred. I thought, I've just watched this episode, and now you're showing me the real deal behind the filming of the episode and where the camera was and all that kind of thing. Well, this is the kind of a job that Psalms does on the book of Samuel. It tells us what the Spirit's understanding is of David's spiritual frame of mind. And so that incident wasn't just about madness and drooling. It was about that. But we know from David's heart and from David's journaling, according to the book of Psalms, that David was sorely pressed, and he was afraid, and he expressed trust in God. And there's an expression of trust that occurs in Psalm 56 twice, in verses 3 and 4 and in verses 10 and 11. The day I am afraid, I myself will trust you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere flesh do to me? Verses 10 and 11, in God whose word I shall praise, in Yahweh whose word I shall praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can a human do to me? So on the one hand, he was flying by the seat of his pants and he was doing his, his best to uh, work his way out of a tough situation. But all the time, so we're told, uh, David was in earnest prayer. Now there's one more thing to notice about the diagram having to do with the books of Samuel and Psalms hinged and stuck together, and I talked about it last week. After 1 Samuel chapter 22 comes 1 Samuel 23, and you see I have a little comic strip um, bubble there, and in, first, in 2 Samuel 23 verses 1 to 7, we're told right after Psalm 18 is recorded in the book that David the singer gave oracles. He was also a prophet and that his psalms were not just poems, that they are, and here comes the chandelier dimension, they are also, in a sense, prophecies. Prophecies about who? About whom? Prophecies about the other David who is to come. I wonder if in your reading of the psalms you've ever come across Psalm, chapter, psalm 72, verse 20, which says, Here end the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. But then after Psalm 22, you read that there are more prayers of David. Well, that gets into a part of the book where David is no longer the historical David, but David is the new chandelier version of David, and the light is shining upon a David who is to come. So my friends, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have these two wonderful books brought together in a way that allows us to see the life of David, to hear his stories, but also to understand the heart that he had for God, and we're also in invited, that's the wagon wheel version, that we're also invited to look at the chandelier version, which sees these as the poems of David that in one manner or another prophesy the coming of Christ. So here's the question. How do we read the Psalms prophetically as well as kind of as a spiritual biography of the life of David? Well, here's the best analogy that I can find. And it comes from the 19th century Anglican theology the 
an Old Testament scholar and theologian whose name was J.J.S. Perone. And you can still find his commentary on the library shelves. He says we need to read the Psalms as though they are typologically prophetic. Typologically prophetic. Now that means that they're like a type. And a type is a picture of something beyond itself. And the picture isn't perfect. But there are elements of the picture that are there. So it's a little bit like, and Joseph and Samantha would get this, when you're reading the Psalms, you can kind of zoom in and zoom out. Um, if you zoom in and see something that reminds you of Jesus, uh, a statement that could have been spoken by Jesus, something that uh, was maybe spoken about Jesus, or you see something happening to David that reminds you of something that happened in Jesus' life, um, Uh, the piercing of his hands and his feet, for example. You say, that's Jesus. That is a prophecy of Jesus. But it's not some kind of a sort of a, 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 an only predictive prophecy. It's a wagon wheel chandelier prophecy. It's both talking about David and historical situation in his life, but it's casting a new light on somebody who is yet to come. And that person who is yet to come is none other than Jesus Christ. So what about Psalm 56 then and 1 Samuel 21, which we just read a few minutes ago? Well, here's a dilemma that I had when I was thinking about this sermon. How do you bring those two together? And I was tempted to say that, um, and, I, I, and I have said this before, that it's a case of both and. That you sort of, you, you do your best to uh, work your way out of a situation. You know, um, you try and come up with schemes in order to stay alive on the human level. But all the while, you're praying and you're depending upon God. It's that old saying, uh, you know, act as though it all depended upon you and pray as though it all depended upon God. But I'm not really sure that that's the best way to go. I'm wondering if the Psalms don't function as kind of a more definitive commentary because in one of the other Psalms, and Roger pointed it out to me earlier this week and I, I went and looked for it, in Psalm 34, it's also an event, it's also a Psalm that talks about this event. And in one of those verses, David says, um, a lying tongue is not a good thing. And to be, to be deceptive is not a good thing. So there actually may be an echo here at times of David repenting of what he did in the books of Samuel. A good example of that, of course, is Psalm 51, where uh, David uh, repents uh, from the sin of Uriah and Bathsheba. So friends, as we come to the end of this uh, session... I want to refer you just to the flip side of the, uh, of the outline. And here comes the application. And there are two applications. One generally in relation to the topic of David and the Psalms, and one specifically in relation to Psalm 56 and 1 Samuel 21. And here's the bottom line as best as I could formulate it. Thinking of both the, wheel, the wagon wheel and the chandelier incarnation. For David, the Messiah, who is Jesus, and us as his followers, the Psalms are common prayers that we are to use to ask for deliverance. And when we receive deliverance, we're to give praise for those victories. And they're also hope-filled expressions of trust amid trials and disappointments. And many are identified as both sung by David and prophesied regarding the future Messiah. My friends, we are to own these psalms and to reverently reflect upon them in light of the life of David, 
in light of the ministry of Jesus and in light of our solidarity with Jesus. As Jesus prayed in the garden, asking God to deliver him, we too are to take the Psalms into on, upon our lips and pray for delivery. When we experience victory, we're to praise God for those victories. And when the answers to our prayers are, do not come in the way that we expected, we are to have hope-filled expressions of trust amid trials and disappointments. That is the role that the Psalms, in general, are to play for us. They function on many different levels. Don't get locked into one zone, only the chandelier zone, only the wagon wheel zone. They pertain to us, they pertain to David, they pertain to the Messiah. Only someone as intelligent as the Holy Spirit could have created such a magnificent multidimensional aspect. And the message of Psalm 56, I believe, in relation to 1 Samuel 21 is this. That either as a supplement or a partial correction to David's actions in 1 Samuel 21, Psalm 56 is an expression of David's trust in God that should be ours. And it was our Lord's as well. The theme is repeated throughout the psalm in verses 3 to 4 and in verses 10 to 11. And it actually picks up on how Psalm 55 ended off. But as for me, I trust in you. Psalm 56, 9 is how I will end. As said David, as said our Lord, and as often not we to say, the day I am afraid, I myself will trust in you. Amen.